That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-host S with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm doing great. Fabulous. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be here, too. <laughs> Thanks I'm... for having me on. <laughs> it's so good to have you. Um, just like last week, and last week, and the last week. Um, it <laughs> well, I think technically the last, last week... I had you on. Well, that's true. That is true. You were driving the bus. Um, It should be noted, we are recording this on the actual day of our two-year anniversary. How about it? I think what a better way to celebrate it than going back to our roots. I mean, I don't think we were actually recording on this day (laughs) two years ago because we actually had started recording in like August or something. Yes. But... The fact that we debuted two years ago today is, uh, it's pretty amazing. We put out three episodes on the first day. Right. Don't ask me which ones. One of them was 13 minutes. That's all I know. That's all I remember. 13 minutes was the first one. House of Terror. Francie Pants. Yep. (laughs) Francie Pants. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And then number three, uh, Missing Uh, Witness. Was it? Wasn't it? Is that Ray Rivera? No. Oh, it wasn't that, Mystery on the Rooftop. I think that was four, because then Berkshire's UFO was five. Oh, no. And I mean... Then and then I'm done about there. <laughs> well, listen, obviously I'm going to pull this up, so of course, we'll keep talking as I figure it out. Yeah. Because um, the missing witness one was... The girl, they, the sisters think their mom killed their sister and their stepdad. You are correct. Nice. Yep. And, and Mystery on the Rooftop was four. Berkshire's was five. Well done. 
Well was done. six the, the Dateline one? Six was Twisted Tales, a bonus Halloween episode. Damn it. Yep. I yeah, I I got I got to 5. You did great. That's listen, not bad. That's better. I got to 2, so you did better than me. You did better than me. <laughs> but listen, it's uh what an honor. 2 years. Yeah. 100 episodes. This is episode 101, 101 Dalmatians. 101 episodes. I want to remind you on episode 99, I said 99 Nuff balloons. <laughs> yeah. Uh everybody's doing great. Everybody's doing great. Um Yeah. But it's always, as you know, I like to mark a, I like to mark an occasion. Of course. Yeah. I've already, I can't wait for episode 182 because the Blink-182 jokes we're going to make. Oh, yeah. Well, and they're back. Oh, I know. They're back. Tom is back. He's come back to the band. Yes. I, I don't want to be a stickler. But. Stick it to me. I have seen so many people. So many people uh, tweet and comment about how they could not be more excited that the original lineup is back. And to that, I want to say, dear people, as I, I in all the land mm-hmm. of Blink-182, Mark Tom Travis is my favorite version of Blink-182. Of course. But just know they are not the originals. I, I, I don't want to hurt you young young children who who are not old enough to know yes but travis wasn't there at the start he was not he was not and that's okay it was a drummer named scott rayner yeah he was there on the buddha album he was there on the dude ranch album yeah he was there on the uh, there was another EP, I think, that they put out. Cheshire Cat. Sorry, Buddha oh, was yeah, the yeah. EP. Cheshire Cat was the album. Yep. Then Dude Ranch. Then for Enema of the State, which was the next album, that's when Travis joined. Yeah. So it was some time in. And I think that there could have been part of the tour that they may have done for Dude Ranch. They Travis may have stepped in. But again, um, all of this to say, yeah, you're dead right. Yeah. You're dead right. You know, I like facts, and I just like people to get things correct. Again, Lists and Mark, facts. The Mark Tom Travis show, it's all I want. Oh. It's all I've wanted for years. Um, I also, I've I've made pleas before, mm-hmm. and they've currently gone unanswered, but I'm, I'm patient. Mm-hmm. I just want one more plea. Dear people at Funko. Yes. Now, you released um, the two... The, the Mark and Travis Funkos. And that was it. And I was hoping there would be a Tom, but I understood why there wasn't. And I know, because I because I have it pre-ordered, I know there's one coming out. That's all three of them. Right. But I also still feel like Tom should have his own. Because the three of them, I believe it's like a three of them together in a th- box. Yes. But I, I would like Tom to have his own. For and those I would wondering, like him to be weathered like he is now, because <laughs> I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> For those wondering, uh, Christy slash Blanche has always been a Tom DeLonge girl, and I've always been a always. Mark Hoppus gal. That's always been the way this has gone. Always, yeah. It just we instantly just gravitated, mm-hmm. and that's just the way it is. Yeah, the devastation when uh, when Tom left. 
I can't. It was hard. It was hard. Can't. And you know, a lot of people have been talking because Tom, of course, was replaced by Matt Skiba. That's how we pronounce that. Skiba. Sure. Skiba. Um, <clears throat> and a lot, and they put out two albums, I believe, with Matt. Yes. Blink One Eighty Two as a band. Yes. And then people have been talking about, you know, Matt and how does he feel, and now that Tom's coming back, etc. And you know, I think it's like, you know, what I'd say it's like, it would be like replacing me on this show. Impossible. Well. You could do it, and you would still be able to put out sufficient episodes where you are very well researched. It would be great, but what would be missing is the heart of the piece. <laughs> You're damn right. Right? And it's yeah. like that's the heart of Blink 182 to me was the relationship between Mark and Tom. They were childhood yes. best friends, teenage best friends. Yes. They. It, they had the it, the charismatic charisma factor. Yes. You know, that's that's the thing. Oh that's God. the special sauce. Of the two of us, you're the one that believes in aliens. I know that I'm the Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I know it. I know oh, it. Oh, yeah. no. Yeah. Look, we, we have had conversations before about doing this show. Um usually it's a lot darker and yep. it's like if one of us died yep would the other continue the show mm -hmm. um which that's not happening no but, of course um i just i just it, obviously it wouldn't be the same but i just don't think i could do it look if katherine han i don't know why i'm sticking with katherine han uh but if katherine han like was like Fill in that inbox with like a, I've heard the show. I love this. I would like that. Um, I'd give her an audition. <laughs> God, I can't wait for the emails we're going to get talking about how much they'd love for me to be re replaced by Catherine Hahn. This is going to be a fun Oh my week. God. No. <laughs> Obviously we won't. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But what, also, okay. okay. it's going to happen. Uh, what happens? What happens if I'm like, I can't, I'm out. And you know who's like ding dong I want in? Sarah Paulson. We do something else. <laughs> I like to that. me, to me, it's like if you go, I drown this baby. You know what I'm saying? Like this is I I send this up the river. Yeah. You know. But what if Sarah Paulson is like, but what I loved about it was the true crime? Great. Then we can do something else. We can't do this. And it wouldn't be the same. It still wouldn't be the yeah. same. It's a, I, I, oh, no. If, if I met Sarah Paulson today, first of yes. all, wow. <laughs> That's all we'd be talking about. <laughs> it would be great. Um, but, oh, that, oh, I have a Sarah Paulson thing in a second. But if I met her today, yeah. we would have to spend, oh, my gosh, 30 years together as friends <laughs> before we could even begin to start a podcast that would even try to rival this. So it's just not going to work. <laughs> You'll love what this. What I love is the idea of you and Sarah Paulson. Yep. <laughs> you being like, hey, I'd love to do a podcast with you. <sighs> we're going to need to prep for 30 years. <laughs> it's going to be, we're going to be elderly. We're going to oh, be elderly. Oh, that'd be a hit. Oh, yeah. We'd be the new Golden Gals. Um, yeah. Oh, the Golden Gals. Oh, oh it like already that. is writing itself. Um, I very quickly, I'm, I'm shooting on my new show, not dead yet, coming to ABC in, in the new year. Um, 
And we were shooting on location. So we were at a yeah. restaurant and the owner wanted to come up and chit chat with me. Great. And <laughs> you'll love this. It was one of those things where it's like, there's 85 people touching you when you're on set, right? Like someone's doing sure. my hair, someone's touching my makeup, somebody's fixing my shirt. This gentleman's coming up to talk to me. Somebody else is doing whatever. But then he said these, these next words that cut through the chaos. He said, <laughs> the table you're sitting at there, we just shot uh, another show here. You know who was sitting right where you were? Sarah Paulson. And I went, no shit. <laughs> I uh -huh. was transfixed. He's like, she's amazing. And I was like, I bet. She's a gift to the craft. She's a gift to the craft. Um, but yeah, anyway, that, that really did tickled me. It made my day. But listen, I get it. If if I die, you can replace me with Catherine Hahn. It's okay. I'm not oh my God. offended. I'm okay, not offended. First of all. Give her an first audition. Of all, Give her an audition. I could never replace. Um, but also, I think at that I I think to quote you, I just have to drown it. Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I would be like, hey, folks, maybe I'll just do something else. But I oh, think God, but then it's gonna be me talking to a Lauren puppet. <laughs> and I'm doing both the voices and then people are really worried. I think if you know who you could replace me with and I would be 100% okay with it? Tom DeLong. <laughs> <laughs> but he's going to want to do one about aliens and I'm going to have to lie. I could. That'll be... <laughs> part of the magic and see i think for me it's that if i'm being mm. replaced by a by a man for example there's no yeah. competition for me there sure he, he's not gonna be me he can't okay he can't bring the sass the charm the pizzazz no. of old no. ash no that's only gonna happen if ryan reynolds agrees to this <laughs> and i'm not asking Unless you were in Clue before you died. <laughs> that uh, would be, that, listen, again, then that would I'd be okay with that too. Anyway, yeah. <clears throat> what I like again is that we're planning our own, <laughs> our own funeral wishes, including mm -hmm. what we do, you know, what we do with this. But, you know, I was going to tweet a joke the day, because the day that Blink-182 announced there's going to be a tour, there's going to be a new album, et cetera. Yeah. I was going to tweet the following joke, and I didn't because I did not want people to think that I was doing this in poor taste. Um, but there was that one part of me that was, of course, like, <laughs> which was going to be so excited that Tom's coming back to Blink-182. It's so sad that we had to kill Andrew Lansbury to get this. Because <laughs> it happened the same day. It, it that, happened the same that day. That day specifically. Yeah. I have never been more overstimulated or overwhelmed mentally in my life. To be honest the with you. the second I woke up. To be honest with you, you were texting Lauren Ash style that day. <laughs> <laughs> they well, were I can't imagine what Furious, those, frantic, what? <laughs> emotional. <laughs> I, it's just, because that was the thing. I, I always set my alarm for like a little bit earlier than when I need to actually get up mm -hmm. so I can look through email yeah. and kind of like wake myself up still cozy before I actually have to get out of bed. And one of the emails was like, Tom's back in Blink-182 are getting back together. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like trying so hard. And I forwarded the email to Lauren. I mm -hmm. then felt the need to text her on top of yep. it. Yep. And then I 
after the email, then I go and check, uh, like, uh, our socials. And then there's like a thing there where there was an update on the, the suspect from Madeline McCann case. And I'm like, what's happening? We literally just put out an episode yep. today that said, we want an update on that. And the world heard us and gave us one. Not really yes. an update on Madeline McCann specifically, but about the suspect. And so then I'm texting Lauren about that and sending her links to articles. And then all of a sudden it was what, an hour later? And I was like, and then Angela Lansbury. And I'm like, and then I'm upset about that. And my husband works from home and he would come out of his office to like grab a drink or something. And like he was coming out like every half hour. And every half hour, I had something new to tell him. <laughs> every time he came out, I went, oh my God, you'll never guess. And he's like, okay. And then he made the joke. Well, I'll be back in half an hour to see what you have to tell me. And I always had something else. Like, it was just, it was a nonstop news day for us, and I didn't know how to handle it. So it was just wild texts constantly. I just. Yeah. Again, Lauren Ash style. Me on a yeah. typical day was you that day, which makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, it should be noted also, yes, in our last episode, we did bring up Madeline McCann, that case. Yes. As of the recording of this show, Christian B., who, of course, was named as a suspect in that case, has yes. not officially been charged with any crimes uh, connected to Madeline McCann's disappearance. There right. has been other charges brought against him, but just bringing everybody up to date as of right now, right. Um, October 13th, 2022, when we're recording this, um, there is no, sadly, uh, further update on her case that we can give. Just wanted to right. throw that in there. Of course. Um, but I also want to say, I didn't want to come off as glib about Angela Lansbury's death because she was a treasure. Oh I was God, deeply yes. affected when I heard that she passed. I feel like a year in which we lose Betty White and Angela Lansbury oh. feels very overwhelming. And Christy and I said the same thing at the same time via text that day, which was somebody protect Julie Andrews. I we're we're, we're oh. worried that again it's like these celebrity deaths they'll come in threes and god forbid god I, forbid I don't know how I function with that that one is going to be oh yeah. I can't I don't even want to talk about it to be honest with you I you know I know is? you know what it is I'm more comfortable talking about my own potential death and being replaced by yes. Catherine Hahn than I am <laughs> talking about Oh, patron St. Julie Andrews dying. I can't. Yeah. Look, like, I'm going to have to. That makes me think of, then that makes me think of Dolly Parton and I can't get into that. Oh, I can't. <laughs> I can't. Um, I'm going to quote you. This might be from a Patreon episode. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. But um, what if Catherine and I don't have the couch banter? <laughs> it's possible. Listen. Okay. I won't. Okay. I won't be. Deal. No. Paul Rudd. Take him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I couldn't. I'd be like, he'd be like, how come my, how come your video's not on? I'm like, I can't physically look at you, Paul. You would basically turn into Chris Farley on the Chris Farley show when he would interview like <laughs> Paul McCartney or whatever. Do you remember when you were in the Beatles? <laughs> remember when you were the sexiest man alive, Paul Rudd? Yeah. That was awesome. <laughs> Um, yes absolutely and i would i would make it a bit where he always had to bring a friend on 
and he would just have to describe the friend to me until I do, until I figured out who they were. That's cute. Well, yeah. Oh God, Paul, look, I don't have a lot of time, but I could squeeze in a second podcast if you're up for it. <laughs> Listen, I respect it. Absolutely. It's just Absolutely. 20 minutes of him giving me clues. Yep. And me trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Rudd's studs. Fuck. Oh, <laughs> oh, I like this. Oh, that sells itself. Right? Oh, Paul Rudd. Let's do this. Yeah, we got it. We got Because the joke is my first question. It'll be like, I can only ask yes or no questions to yep. figure out who it is. And yep. my first question always is, is it a man? And he's like, <laughs> yes. And it's always been, it's always a man. Always. Although down he might, su- down he might surprise me in episode 100. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, listen. Story. Shout out to Angela Lansbury. Uh, yes. May she rest. What a beautiful, wonderful career. Wonderful long life. Truly treasured by so many, including both of us. Um, and I do have to mention, someone who we have discovered did five episodes of Ms. Lansbury's hit television program, Murder, She Wrote. Yeah. Is a gentleman named Robert Pine. Yeah. Now, I know what everybody's thinking. Who's Robert Pine and why are you bringing him up? Well, there's a specific reason. Yeah. Robert Pine is the father to one gentleman we've talked about on this show quite a lot recently. I have anyway. A gentleman named Chris Pine, or as we like to call him, Christmas Pinecone. <laughs> and Christy threw something at me this week that rocked me to my core. Because Mr. Robert Pine is a very prolific actor. He's been in so many things. Like we just said, Murder, She Wrote. Oh, 234, I believe. 234 credits. That is impressive. He he was Jim's dad on The Office. Hey! He, I mean, he was on Parks and Rec. He was on a ton of episodes of Bold and the Beautiful. He was on Star Trek Voyager. That's cute, too, because they have Star Trek, Star Trek, Star Trek. Star Trek connection. Yeah. I think this is also something that was in, that I learned on Tuesday. Like Tuesday I think this, was a big day. It was this, a big day for us. This was it. I may yeah. need to pull the analytics just to see how many, how our texts like, are, it's like, oh, they usually average about 200 a day. That day it was 5,000. Oh, it was um, bad. Yeah. But yeah. So Robert Pine, Chris Pine's dad. Yeah. Has done, has over 234 credits to his name. We were just naming a bunch of them. Huge shows. Murder, She Wrote, The Office, Bold and the Beautiful, Voyager, and also a program called Superstore. And what are you all thinking? The same thing I thought. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What episode? It was the episode in season three when Dina's going on a double date with the guy who's working from the pet at the pet food store uh, who's going to bring a friend for Amy and it turns yeah. out that the guy is a little bit older than Dina kind of let on. And that older gentleman was played by Robert Pine, Chris Pine's dad. And yeah. he did not mention this on the day uh, when I worked with him. He was very talented, very, very funny. We, it was a great scene. Um, but now I can't believe, unbeknownst to me, one degree away from Christmas Pinecone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Like, And that feels like a synergy because I just started talking about Chris Pine and how deeply, viscerally affected I was by him in Don't Worry Darling. Then he cuts his hair the same day oh. I think all of this happened. And mm. he's got this silver fox daddy mm-hmm. thing going, which I'm saying uh, hardcore yes to. Yeah. And now I find this connection? I don't know. I don't know, listeners. It just yeah. feels like the synergy, the synchronicity is starting to get wild. Yeah. So you're one away from Pine, mm-hmm. which means you are two away from Tom Hardy. Yep. And two away from Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my I God. Picked- Reba McIntyre. I would absolutely do a podcast with Reba McIntyre. Oh, you know what that could be? There's like a whole redhead thing you got going there. That is true. That yeah. is true. And I'm going to tell her right out the gate, I'd like us to interview Shania Twain. Why am I there? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Just let Reba do it. Christie's Country Chats? I'm going to request. Featuring Reba? That the first thing Shania says is, let's go, girls. Fuck. Yeah. Chills. I can't. <laughs> Chills. I mean, the other thing, too, is, like, if you wanted to start a second podcast with me where we interview country music stars also, like, I'm, a, I'm available, like, as much as I can be, you know. But it's okay. <laughs> we'll Look, do, like, we the, know that we'll do, like, the comedians in the car getting coffee. <laughs> but <laughs> what's ours going to be? <sighs> Country we're gonna Uber, we're, we're gonna Uber to get Slurpees. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I'm not mad at that. Look, we uh, all know that this this show already, you know, is towing a line into pop culture anyway. So who knows? <laughs> who knows what's gonna happen? It is. It is. Um, but listen, let's get into the episode. We had to get through all those updates because, again, we have to give all of the pop culture updates and updates <laughs> about our lives in order to even get into the episode. So that's just what we do now. I like that. This is our. Uh, pop culture podcast in the opening yeah and then we get to the other stuff yep yep the stuff people are actually here for that's right i wonder what we could call this portion like pop culture bites you know what i mean i had something the other day oh i can't even remember what we were talking about i can't remember but i wrote down if we ever did a pop culture podcast, mm-hmm. we should call it Gossip for Good. I don't oh. know why. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love that. So uh, that's where I'm at. I love it. Gossip for Good. Well, yeah. listen, we should check that out. Copyright. <laughs> um, but until then, dear listeners, <laughs> this true crime episode is, of course, about Phoebe Hansjuk. Um, this was, of course, our September patrons poll winner. We, of course, are over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cocktails. We have four bonus episodes over there a month, a live Q&A a month, and there is a poll where you can vote uh, to choose one of the episodes we cover on this main feed of the podcast, one a month. So check that out if you'd like more information about that. So to give you a little backstory about this case, in December 2010, 24-year-old Phoebe Hansjuk was found dead at the bottom of a garbage chute in a luxury apartment building in Melbourne, Australia. 
A coroner said that Phoebe's manner of death was undetermined, but the police were adamant that Phoebe had committed suicide. So what really happened to Phoebe Hansjuk? How did she get into the shoot on her own? And why were police so quick to close the case before they even tested all the evidence? Buckle up, dear listeners, for a case that includes a sketchy boyfriend, missing evidence, a coroner with a bad theory, and multiple police officers who didn't do their jobs. It's a case full of evidence, but none of it adds up. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not laughing at that. I'm laughing at my own words. I love it. I I I go to another place sometimes Mm -hmm. when, when I... When I write those, and I want you to know, yes, I read them aloud to hear how they would sound. Well, you're doing your job. It is what it is. It is what it is. Well. Oh, so, as always. Well, I, yes, I'll say as always. We've been doing this for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, Disclaimer right off the hop of it. This episode will contain mentions of suicide, domestic violence, and substance abuse, so trigger warning for those who need it. And something else that I want to warn about right off the top. I will not be talking kindly about the police in this episode. And while I don't normally warn about that, and likely won't in the future... We have recently received some comments on our social media regarding the way we speak about police. Or more specifically, some feel that we've been too hard on the police in our latest episodes. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. When I speak negatively about the police, I am not speaking about every police officer as a whole. When I'm angry because police simply didn't do their jobs, it's anger at those specific cops in that specific case. When I speak positively about police, I also don't mean all of them as a whole. So yes, we've been hard on police in episodes lately, but police need to be held to high standards, especially when they are the ones in charge of solving the very crimes that we talk about every week. And yes, there are good police officers out there, and when we come across one in a case, we acknowledge them, but we will absolutely call out the ones who fuck up investigations. If a case is currently unsolved because of shitty police work, we will say as much. So to be clear, when I speak negatively about the police, it is regarding the police who are working the specific case we're talking about, not all of them. Again, I have respect for the majority of police. And listen, I think the other thing that's important to remember is if you're talking about a true crime case that is either unsolved uh, or is super famous, yeah, it is not unlikely that there is a possibility that there could be something that was mishandled or something that went wrong. There are sure. lots of cases that get solved, and those ones don't necessarily get talked about if there isn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, like, yeah. I understand that we're not commending uh, great police work all the time, but part of what we've always, you know, st- strive to do on this show is talk about a lot of unsolved cases, um, you know, putting word out about things that have, have, you know, perhaps not had a lot of attention brought to them in some time, the missing cases we've been doing, stuff like that. Um, but then also, yeah, you know, I think it is one of those things that it's important to, uh, to, to, to note and remember. And like I said in a recent episode, 
I, I believe I said it in a recent episode. I may have been on a live. They, things blur. Um, I, I personally, and this is not going to make any friends for me, when people say defund the police, I feel mixed about that because a lot of what we hear when we get into these cases is that there is just not the manpower in the detective branches of sure. police services to properly investigate. And my concern when we, we get into th- these kinds of, of topics, and it's very nuanced, and I'm doing a very brief overview here, so please do not take me as this being my entire opinion. My entire opinion would take some time to talk about, and I'm not going to waste time now. But my point is, is that I kind of think the opposite in some ways, that it's like, I think that there's certain branches that I'd like to see more money being poured into, which is sure training investigators, more medical examiners. You know what I mean? Now, I know they're not exactly the police, but you know what I'm saying, that it's like, yes. I think overhauling the system completely is something um, that absolutely needs to be done. Um, but I certainly think that there needs to be more manpower when it comes to investigators and detectives, because- that's something that we hear a lot. And when we're condemning how things are handled, quite often it can come back to just simply not having the time and having to prioritize things and sure. things slip through the cracks or aren't handled properly or, you know what I'm saying? Um, and if there was p- potentially more detectives, maybe that wouldn't happen and maybe it would. But my point is, I agree with you and I think it's an important note to make. Yes. So we're moving on. We are. Phoebe Hanschuk was born May 9th, 1986, in Melbourne, Australia. Her father, Len, was a psychiatrist, and her mother, Natalie, was a medical receptionist. The family added Tom in 1988 and Nikolai in 1992. They lived happily in the Richmond suburbs until Phoebe was 15 and her parents divorced. After that, her family say that Phoebe fell in with the wrong crowd and started experimenting with drugs and alcohol. At one point, Phoebe even ran away for several weeks. Phoebe attended Sophia Mundy Steiner School in Abbotsford, but left at the end of year 11 after starting a relationship with a teacher twice her age. Let me be clear. There is absolutely no shade to Phoebe. She was a child. Shame on the man for having a willingly having a relationship with a teenage girl. Mm-hmm. Again, I can't I can't come on our show again and scream. Well, she's an old soul. It, no, no, she's a child. Yep. Stop it. The only reason you don't go after women your own age is because they see through your bullshit. Yep. Anyhow. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So, Phoebe worked various jobs in sales and fell into a depression. Her father, Len, referred Phoebe to one of his colleagues, and she was eventually put on antidepressants. But her family wanted to make it clear that it never got to the point where Phoebe was hospitalized. While working as a receptionist at a hair salon at the age of 23, Phoebe met 42-year-old Anthony Hample, known simply as Ant. Five months into their relationship, Ant asked Phoebe to move in with him in October 2009 at the luxury Valencia Apartments on St. Kilda Road. Which brings us to the day in question. On December 2nd, 2010, the fire alarm went off around 11.30 a.m. The fire brigade was on the scene at 11.32, and all 23 floors of the building were evacuated. According to CCTV footage, 
Phoebe was seen leaving the building with her boyfriend's dog Yoshi at 11.44 a.m. According to a witness, Phoebe stood with the dog on a strip of grass at the front of the building before re-entering at 11.50 a.m. At the time, some renovations were being done in the penthouse, and some of the contractor's tools set off the alarm. The alarm went off a second time at 6.05 p.m., however, it was quickly turned off, and the building was not evacuated. The contractor said they had wired something incorrectly. The fire brigade, fire brigade again arrived on scene and left by 6.35 Phoebe's boyfriend, Ant, arrived home at 6.05 p.m. He saw shards of broken glass, a pillow that had been torn up, and there was blood on the floor and on the keyboard and computer mouse in the study. Ant also recalled that there were candles burning and Phoebe's hair straightener was plugged in in the bathroom. But Phoebe was nowhere to be found. There were two used drinking glasses on the counter along with Phoebe's purse, wallet, keys, and swipe card, meaning that without the keys and swipe card, Phoebe wouldn't have been able to get back into the building if she left. Aunt also noted several post-it notes on the kitchen counter with Phoebe's handwriting on them, which was not unusual as she was a poet who was always jotting down thoughts and ideas. At 6.25 p.m., Aunt texted Phoebe's friend, Bren, asking if he had seen Phoebe. But since Bren and Aunt didn't normally speak, Bren ignored the message. At 6.51 p.m., Phoebe's father, Len, called Phoebe's iPhone. According to Aunt, Phoebe's phone wasn't there, and he just happened to call Len one minute later at 6.52 p.m. Do we really believe that Aunt just happened to call Len as opposed to purposely called him back? Well, according to Len, Phoebe had suggested that the three of them, Len, Phoebe, and Aunt, go for dinner at the Golden Triangle that night to celebrate Len's belated birthday. Len was calling to find out what time to meet them. Aunt said that Phoebe was not there, but, quote, her bag and keys are here, so she can't be too far away. Len suggested that Aunt call the police, but Aunt said, quote, they don't listen until 48 hours have passed, and she'll be back by then. Now, before I get too far into this, I want to point out that Phoebe had two cell phones, an iPhone, and a Nokia. According to the police report, Phoebe used the second phone uh, to store private contacts from Aunt. We'll get more into these separate phones later in the show. Okay. At 7.20 p.m., Ant called the Golden Triangle and ordered dinner for himself. I get it. You're done work. You're hungry. But the fact that he didn't order something for Phoebe for when she got back makes it feel as though maybe, allegedly, he knew she wasn't coming back. But what do I know? I'm just a highly skeptical person who trusts no one. Mm-hmm. At 8.03 p.m., the delivery man buzzed the apartment, and when he got to the door, he told Ant that there were swarms of police at the building. So to clarify, Ant arrived home, found blood and broken glass, and saw Phoebe's keys and swipe card, knowing she wouldn't be able to get back in the building, 
and yet he had no concern about her whereabouts. And even though Aunt told Phoebe's father he didn't think she'd be gone that long, Aunt ordered food just for himself. And from the restaurant that she planned for all of them to go to dinner at. Mm-hmm. Which is also weird. Uh, Beth Ozilup, uh, the afternoon concierge at the Valencia Apartments, uh, arrived at her office when someone told her that there was crumbs all over one of the elevators. Since the cleaning staff only worked in the mornings, Beth had to deal with it personally. There was a broom and dustpan across the hall from her office in the compactor room, but when Beth unlocked the door, she noticed there was something in the way of the door. She shoved her shoulder into the door, which opened it enough to trigger the automatic sensor that turned the lights on in the compactor room. Beth noted that one of the four garbage bins that sit below uh, the trash chutes had fallen over, and there was garbage all over the floor. When she opened the door further, she noticed something between the door and the wall. At first, Beth thought it was a mannequin, but then she realized it was the body of a woman. Beth told author Robin Bowles that she screamed and ran to her office, where she called Eric Giamario, who was the on-site manager. She then called Triple Zero, which is basically their 911, uh, and then made a call to her sister. The ambulance was called at 7.20 p.m. and arrived seven minutes later, around the same time as the police. However, while the paramedics grabbed their gear, the police officers headed straight to the scene. Paramedic Christy Cook said she tried to enter the area, but was stopped by an officer who told her no one was allowed in because it might disturb the crime scene. Christy then asked the officer if they wanted her to attach a heart monitor to the victim, and he said, quote, No, we believe the patient is deceased. Police wouldn't even let the paramedics check the victim for a pulse. Is that protocol? Nope, not that I'm aware of. Yeah. Christy said that from her vantage point, she noted a female lying on her back with cuts to her right hip and thigh, and that her right foot was at an unnatural angle. She said that the body, quote, showed a generalized cyanosis, or bluish tinge, no spontaneous respirations, and appeared deceased. A call went out to the homicide unit at 8 p.m., and the garbage rooms on all floors of the building were closed, so no more debris would contaminate the potential crime scene. After the delivery guy had mentioned the cops, Ant headed down to the lobby at 8.12 p.m. He went up to a detective and asked what was going on. Ant was told that a woman's body had been found. Ant said, well, my girlfriend is missing. Could it be her? The detective asked Ant to go back back up and get a photo of his girlfriend. He did. The detective compared it to the photos that another detective had taken at the scene, and he said he did believe that the deceased woman was, in fact, Phoebe Hansjuk. Phoebe was just 24 at the time of her death. She was described as vibrant, intuitive, sensitive, and incurably romantic. She was adventurous, musical, creative, and considered to be a real live wire. It is believed that Phoebe entered the garbage chute on the 12th floor 
and fell 30 meters to the garbage bin at the bottom of the chute. She survived the initial fall. However, the compactor blade nearly severed her right foot completely. When Phoebe hit the garbage can, it fell over and she ended up on the floor. And now this is going to be uncomfortable to hear, but based on the blood trails, it is believed that Phoebe dragged herself to the door, but was unable to open it. Her bloody handprint was found on the back of the door. Oh, God. When Phoebe was found, she was lying on her back with her belt unbuckled and her jeans down below her knees. There has been no explanation as to why her jeans were down, but part of me wonders if Phoebe tried to use her belt as some sort of tourniquet because she knew she was bleeding badly, um, but maybe she passed out before she was able to finish. I'm going to be clear, there were no signs of any sexual assault. Okay. Phoebe's Prada sunglasses were also found near her body. Blood was found inside the compactor, on the control panel in one of the elevators, in the B1 parking garage, as well as several drops on the floor of the garbage room on the 12th floor. There were only two elevators in the building and three levels of parking. The blood was found on B1. For clarification's sake, Ant parks on B2. A fingerprint expert obtained fingerprints at the site at 4.55 a.m. He reported, quote, no fingerprints of any identifiable value were located on any of the items I examined at the scene. A forensic tech took 148 photos of the scene, including apartment 1201, where Aunt and Phoebe resided. Police asked about the ripped-up cushion. Uh, they... Ant believes that it was the fault of his American Staffordshire Bull Terrier, Yoshi, who allegedly had behavioral issues. Ant told police that Yoshi, quote, would tear through things on a daily basis. So when he saw the cushion, it wasn't unusual. And if that's true, I find it very interesting because people who know Ant personally say that he doesn't like messes at all. He wouldn't even let Phoebe bring all of her stuff to the apartment. Um, he just didn't want too much stuff around. So if it's true, it's amazing to me that he didn't give the dog away or pay for a trainer or something like that if the dog is destroying something every single day. And to be clear, I am not suggesting you get rid of a pet if they have some sort of problem. I have a cat that pees on my floor every single day. If it was on tile, linoleum, anything, fine. But no, she chooses carpet. It's hell. But I chose her, and she's mine for life. That's how it works. I'm also trying to work on many things to get her to stop, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we'll see. We'll see. But you're saying, it's a you're saying for someone who's is very particular. Yes. Yeah. I there are There are so many people in the world who get to a point with a pet and go, not for me, and yeah. let them be adopted by someone else. We are not those people, and we're no, not suggesting we anyone are, be those we are people. Lifers. We are yes. lifers. But I but. hear you that you're saying if this guy was, like, super uptight about it, it's interesting that then he'd be like, oh, yeah, ain't no thing, just my dog, when other people it's, are like, no, that's not like him. Like, that's important it's, to know. It is weird to me. So, 
investigators concluded that Phoebe entered the chute sometime between 12.03 p.m. and 7 p.m. The fact that they were never able to narrow it down further than that feels so suspicious to me, for whatever reason. Um, Especially because they're saying she could have gone in sometime between 6 and 7 when her boyfriend was home. Yeah. We'll get into that later. Uh, Phoebe's body was removed from the scene at 2.45 a.m., and she was officially declared dead at 4.30 a.m. The autopsy was completed by Dr. Matthew Lynch, and it took just over three hours. Lynch reported that the injuries to Phoebe's lower body were consistent with a fall down a narrow chute. Her right foot had been nearly amputated, and multiple arteries had been severed. I also find it interesting that even after an autopsy, they couldn't narrow down, like, time of death to decide maybe yeah. when she... That's that, odd. There's... Oh, it just gets odder from here. Yeah, I'm sure of it, because I already have a lot of questions. Yeah. Uh, Phoebe also had several broken bones, but there was no sign of neck trauma. There were, however, multiple bruises on Phoebe's upper arms, wrists, and neck as well as a subdural hematoma on the left side of her brain that didn't come from the incident. Sorry, that didn't appear to have come from the incident. Dr. Lynch didn't consider those particular injuries to be significant enough to mention in his report. A detective who truly tried to investigate this case mentioned the bruises after noticing them on photos of the victim, they are not mentioned in the official autopsy. Toxicology revealed that Phoebe's blood alcohol was 0.16, which is more than three times the legal limit. She also had one or two pills of Stillnox in her system, which is a prescription sleeping aid, also known as Zolpidem. Uh, Dr. Lynch also confirmed there was no sign of sexual trauma. Dr. Lynch concluded that Phoebe died from multiple injuries resulting in exsanguination, a.k.a. significant blood loss, and ruled that Phoebe's manner of death was undetermined. He added, quote, I am not in the position to exclude the involvement of other parties. And yet, police quickly determined that Phoebe's death was suicide. In fact, around 9.40 p.m., when the concierge Beth who found Phoebe's body, was visibly upset, one officer told her, and I quote, don't be too upset. She took her own life. And I have a lot of issues with that statement. Yeah. One, suicide does not make a death any less devastating to those involved. No. Two, that poor woman found a possible dead body, which is upsetting. So cut her some slack. Yes. And three, in less than two hours on scene, without having investigated anything, the officer was already convinced that Phoebe's death was a suicide, even though it clearly looked like something else was going on. And since police were quick to assume what happened to Phoebe, it means third-party involvement just wasn't really investigated in this case. But I'm also curious, if the police were so quick to think it was a suicide then why did they refuse to let the paramedics in out of a fear they would disturb the crime scene? The idea that paramedics had to stand by and not potentially help the victim? What if there was a faint heartbeat? 
What if it was possible that the paramedics could have saved Phoebe? I know that it was assumed that she was dead, but to me, no one was 100% sure, and I think it's highly suspicious that no one checked. Police were determined that Phoebe's death was a suicide, but since there were a lot of suspicious things that didn't add up in Phoebe's death, her family weren't willing to accept that. So in August 2013, Phoebe's mother, Natalie, raised $50,000 to cover the cost of an inquest. Any, or sorry, not any, aunt opposed the inquest, as his lawyers said there was not enough evidence to prove it was a homicide. Mm. And I'm sorry, but if my partner dies, I am absolutely going to want every inquest possible to determine what truly happened. So again... You look a little shady, Aunt. Mm-hmm. Experts spent months going over the case, and the official coronial inquest lasted 17 days and included 29 witnesses and more than 150 exhibits. Coroner Peter White was given assisting counsel by Deborah, I'm so sorry, I'm going to say this wrong, Siemensma, uh, who submitted a very lengthy and detailed 68-page report that stated there was not enough evidence to prove or disprove any specific manner of death. Deborah's recommendation was an open finding, which occurs when a death is suspicious, but there's no proof one way or another. An open finding in a case means that investigators are still allowed to continue to work the case. But on December 10th, 2014, Coroner White decided to ignore all of Deborah's findings and advice and declare Phoebe's death to be misadventure because he felt that was a kinder thing for the family than saying suicide. He also claimed that Phoebe, quote, commenced to move down the chute by pressing her extremities and her bottom and back against the opposite walls of the chute thereby controlling herself in descent. And while we will fully get into it later, not one, but two different experts involving women the same size as Phoebe trying to get themselves into a garbage chute proved that the chute was not wide enough for Phoebe's arms to be by her sides. The only way she could have fit down that chute would have been with her arms above her head, and there's no way she can control her speed with her arms at that angle. Coroner White claimed that the absence of serious internal injuries was proof that Phoebe was able to control her speed of descent. And I say the fact that she couldn't physically fit, and the fact that she didn't have any dirt on her arms, despite the inside of the chute being really dirty, proves that she didn't, in fact, press her arms to the inside of the chute. Coroner White's findings stated that Aunt and Phoebe's relationship was deeply troubled and that Phoebe had been going through a low mood. He praised Aunt for being supportive and said he found no history of physical violence. And to that I say, it's possible that there can be physical violence, but maybe Phoebe just didn't report it. Mm -hmm. It's also possible that there was no physical violence, But we know that Phoebe had previously told her therapist that Aunt was being verbally abusive. Also, there were unidentified bruises found on Phoebe's arms and wrists that appeared as though someone had grabbed her. 
I'm not saying it was Ant. I'm just saying the coroner White might not know the whole story. But along with outright praising Ant, coroner White also specifically ruled out Ant as a suspect. Because even though he wasn't a suspect, Ant's lawyers requested that coroner White, quote, make a positive finding exonerating his client from any involvement in Phoebe's death. And if I wasn't suspicious before, which I was, I am now. Yeah. After Coroner White's findings, Ant released a statement. This is, uh, this is that statement, quote, It was hard enough to lose Phoebe Hansjuck, who was a vibrant and loving young woman in her mid-twenties when she died four years ago. But it was even harder dealing with the false claims and totally unjustified allegations which followed. I wouldn't say totally. Yeah. These wild allegations have now been put to rest by the robust coroner's investigation and report handed down today. None of this will bring Phoebe back. My hope is now we can allow Phoebe to rest in peace. He speaks very robotically about Mm -hmm. her, but... I'll say that uh, again later on. But after the inquest, Phoebe's mother, Natalie, was going to challenge the findings. However, in Victoria, the only way to do that is to take it all the way to the Supreme Court, which is incredibly expensive. And it's just so frustrating when all of the evidence points to Coroner White ruling an open finding, which would have meant the case would have been ongoing but I just don't buy what Coroner White said. To be clear, Coroner White surmised that Phoebe broke a glass, put the pieces in a garbage bag, took it to the garbage room on the 12th floor, and when putting the bag in the chute, Phoebe either dropped something, climbed in to get it, and fell, or purposely got in the chute with the intention of taking her own life. Which leads us to a a section that I've titled, Things That Don't Add Up About Coroner White's Theory. Mm Mm-hmm. One thing I will agree There was glass broken somewhere in that apartment. However, I doubt that Phoebe took the broken pieces immediately to the garbage chute, because there were still obvious glass shards in the apartment when police arrived. Also, there was no broken glass or bags containing broken glass, found anywhere in the garbage. There were no bags found outside the garbage chute door. So there is zero evidence that Phoebe went to the garbage chute with any glass. So it's wild to me that the coroner would include that in his theory, especially when it is so easily disprovable. Yeah. Oh, and the glass shards... They weren't tested to determine if they matched the glasses in the apartment. Uh, they also, there also wasn't any sort of spilled liquid on the ground, so it's assumed the glass was empty when it was either dropped or potentially thrown. And the idea that Phoebe dropped something into the chute and went in to retrieve it. Sure, that's possible. But if she had been leaning into the chute, she would have fallen in headfirst. But we know, based on her injuries, she went into that chute feet first. 
if an item had fallen in and she couldn't reach it, why wouldn't Phoebe just take the elevator down to the main floor and try and get in the compactor room where all the chutes empty into? And yes, Phoebe was intoxicated at the time. So is it possible she thought going down the chute would be faster and potentially fun? Because you know how you can be when you're not sober? In the grand scheme of anything is possible, sure. But then explain to me how there were no fingerprints on the door of the chute and how Phoebe would have pulled herself up into the chute while she was intoxicated. Coroner White also said Phoebe likely cut herself on the glass, which would explain the blood in the apartment. But if that's true, then why was there no blood on the garbage chute door or the walls around it? To pull herself up into the chute, there was nothing to hold on to, so she would have had her hands on the walls, and blood would have been everywhere. There was nothing. I also find it interesting that Coroner White fully exonerated Ant when his advising counsel's report said, quote, aspects of Mr. Hample's evidence were unsatisfactory. So why exonerate a man when there is no evidence? Investigators said that Phoebe went into the chute sometime between 12 and 7. We know Ant got home at 6.03. An hour is more than enough time to have a fight, throw a glass, and try and dispose of a body. Or maybe he came home and found Phoebe drunk and he was mad about it. So he put her in the chute to teach her a lesson, thinking he'd scare her straight. It's possible he put her in the chute not realizing that she would die or get hurt in any way, just like it's possible that he put her in that chute hoping that she would. Allegedly. Mm -hmm. But we will focus more on Ant and our theories later on. But I want to talk about the police in this specific case. I know that I'm not an expert. But so many of these officers failed Phoebe. Not all of them, but especially the first investigators on scene. So we're going to take a moment to point out all the ways the police failed Phoebe. When they first arrived at Ant's apartment, police noted large, dirty boot or shoe prints heading away from their door. Based on the length of the stride, an officer determined that the person was either tall or possibly running. But for whatever reason, officers did not photograph these prints or attempt to identify them in any way. In the apartment, there was blood and broken glass. For some unknown reason, not all of the blood was tested. There was blood found on a computer mouse and a keyboard in the study. It also wasn't tested. Police didn't photograph or test the blood that was found on the 12th floor garbage room door. Not the chute door, because that had nothing on it. I'm talking the door to get into the room that has the chute. Two glasses were found on the counter. Neither were tested or dusted for prints. They failed to thoroughly check the apartment, including all of the garbage cans because they didn't look at garbage cans in the bathrooms, or I believe there was one in the bedroom and maybe the study as well. They missed multiple garbage cans, is my point. 
At least one of the three potential crime scenes were not properly secured. They waited months before contacting Ant's staff to confirm his movements that day. One was interviewed four months later, and two were interviewed 11 months later. They didn't take statements from the paramedics. They didn't take one from the building's manager until January 10th, 2012. I remind you, Phoebe's death occurred in December 2010. Despite there being 14 CCTV security cameras in that building, police only looked at three of them. And even though the officers were immediately told that footage gets recorded over every two days, they didn't try and save the footage until 18 months later. Shockingly, by then the footage had been erased, but more mysteriously by then, the hard drive for the CCTV footage had gone missing. Oh boy. Police didn't speak with the manufacturer of the garbage chute to find out if Phoebe's injuries were consistent with the chute and the compactor. After Phoebe was identified, police left Ant alone in the apartment twice. Even after finding blood at the scene, they wouldn't let paramedics near an injured person because they thought they might wreck the crime scene, but they let the victim's partner be alone in the apartment that looks like a fight had broken out? Despite, despite blood being found on the computer, police waited until March 2011 to seize the computer and Phoebe's laptop. If Phoebe had taken her own life, as the police believed she did, wouldn't it be likely that maybe she might have left a suicide note on the computer, especially if there was blood on it? And when the computers were finally searched by police, they only searched them for the terms depression and suicide. Oh, God. After Phoebe's laptop was released to her family, Phoebe's brother Tom got into Phoebe's email account and found that all of her outgoing emails had been erased. Whoa! But of course, we don't know if that happened before it got to the police or not. And right. if this wasn't all frustrating enough, one final thing I want to mention, which brings more questions than answers, is a piece of paper that was found in Phoebe's pocket during the autopsy. It wasn't mentioned in the autopsy report, but was found by Victoria Forensic Science employee Louise Brown. The paper had a phone number written on it, which was registered to Tina Smith. The number was for a prepaid cell phone, so the name Tina Smith, as well as the address associated with it, were fake. During the inquest, Deborah Siemensma noted that the number was almost identical to one of the numbers in Phoebe's phone, and that Phoebe had called the nearly identical number three nights before her death. It is believed the number could be associated with a known drug dealer in the area, but I could not confirm this. The real kicker here for me is that not only was the number not listed in the autopsy, but also it seems like it wasn't mentioned at all until Louise gave the paper to Detective Brendan Payne on June 20th, 2011, more than six months 
after the paper was found. Why did she wait so long to give the police the paper? Did the original coroner and or police dismiss it? So she waited to find the right person to give it to. Since it was so long after, how do we know the paper was found in Phoebe's pocket? It's all just pure madness at this point. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean... Yeah. God, I have so many questions, but again, I'm going to save them till the end. As we do yeah. on this show, I don't know what Catherine Hahn would do, but that's what <laughs> I'm going to do. Uh, so everybody, grab a drink, hit the can, and we're going to be back with more on the Phoebe Hansjuk episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking the case of Phoebe Hansjuk. Um, And before the break, it was pure madness. Where are we heading now? Well, I have thrown a lot of information out already in the uh, first half of our program. Mm -hmm. Uh, The main thing to remember In this moment, if you remember nothing else of everything I've told you, remember that Phoebe's cause of death was exsanguination or extreme blood loss. So the big question is, what was her manner of death? I see. As we know, there are five options. Undetermined, natural, suicide, accidental, and homicide. Police believe it was suicide. One coroner said undetermined. The inquest coroner said misadventure or accident. Right. We're going to skip undetermined. As that... (laughs) What do you even talk about? Yeah. uh, In that. Uh, We're also going to skip natural because we know it absolutely was not. Yes. So given what we know, is it possible... That Phoebe took her own life. In the grand scheme of anything is possible, sure. Not to be crass, Mm -hmm. but I personally think, again, my opinion, if Phoebe was planning to take her own life, she would have possibly used too many sleeping pills or jumped off the balcony from their apartment. Phoebe confided in a friend in the summer of 2010, six months before her death, that 
she had pulled a chair out onto the balcony so she could stand on the railing. So if something's been on her mind before, it would make sense that maybe it would be on her mind again. But to specifically choose climbing into a garbage chute does not add up to me, especially when it would have been incredibly difficult for Phoebe to get into the chute on her own while inebriated. And speaking of difficult, the chute door was one meter off the ground and had an opening that was 14 and a half inches by 8.6 inches. So it was a tiny opening. Even If Phoebe decided to use the garbage chute, she would have needed to pull herself up with something. The chute, again, it's a meter off the ground, and with nothing else around, she would have had to use the chute's door to pull herself up. But remember, there were no fingerprints on the chute door, and according to the coroner at the inquest, Phoebe's hands were likely bleeding, so she would have left blood on the garbage chute door but there was none. But if she got into the chute on her own, how would she physically do it? Well, during the investigation, police never checked to see if it was physically possible for Phoebe to get herself into the chute. So Phoebe's grandfather, Lorne Campbell, who is a retired police officer, decided to conduct an experiment himself. Lorne brought in a friend of Phoebe's, who was the same approximate height and weight as Phoebe, and had her try and climb into a replica of the chute. Detective Brendan Payne, who seemed to be the only investigator willing to actually investigate this case, also attended the experiment. Shout out to Detective Payne for genuinely looking into this case. The friend managed to get herself into the chute, but she said it was extremely difficult, especially since the friend was sober at the time of the experiment, and we know that Phoebe was not. Uh, It would have obviously been more of a challenge for someone who was not sober in the time. Uh, The true crime show Under Investigation with Liz Hayes did an experiment with a woman trying to get into an exact replica of that garbage chute. The woman, again, Same height and same weight as Phoebe. This woman was even wearing similar clothing to what Phoebe was wearing. The woman said it was really tight and scary. And as you try to get inside, the door just closes in on you because there is a big spring Mm -hmm. that's constantly pulling the door. The woman doubted that she would have been able to enter the chute if she was intoxicated. FYI, side note, during this experiment... They also had a man try and place the woman into the chute. Police had originally said it was easier for Phoebe to get into the garbage chute by herself than it would have been for someone to place her in it while she was unconscious. And while we don't know the size of the person who may or may not have placed Phoebe in the chute, the man in the experiment had no problem picking up that woman, opening the chute, and putting her in. No problem at all. Something to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Again, we don't know the dimensions, how the dimensions, we don't know how tall the man was versus who it could have been. I'm just saying it's right. doable. Right. 
for something police said was so hard and could never be done, it's doable. But I just can't believe that Phoebe physically got into that chute on her own, especially without leaving any blood or fingerprints anywhere. And while we're on the topic of suicide, we should also check out Phoebe's mental state at the time. We know that she suffered from depression and she was on medication for it. On December 1st at 10.33 a.m., the day before her death, Phoebe sent out a strange group text message to eight people, which included her parents, her brothers, her grandmother, her boss, and aunt. The message read, quote, Hi, family. I am in bed and about to sleep, and when I wake, I will transform into the most incredible human being you've ever seen. Not. I will go to hospital. It's safer there, and I hear the special tonight is tomato soup. Delicious. Nutritious. I love you all very much, but not enough to send an individual text. Sorry about that, but time is sleep, and I must be on my way. Merrily, merrily, merrily. Life is but a dream. XO. Her grandmother was so concerned about the text that she called Aunt at 10.35 a.m. to ask him if Phoebe was okay. Aunt said he hadn't seen the message yet, but that Phoebe was sleeping when he left for work and he would stop by the apartment during the day to check on her. Phoebe's mother texted Aunt to say the same thing, and Aunt told her Phoebe was fine. Thing is, Remember how I told you earlier that Phoebe had two phones? This message came from her iPhone, which was having problems holding a charge, so Aunt told police he took Phoebe's phone to get it repaired on December 1st, and that he dropped it off on his way to work. But if that's true, that means that Phoebe wouldn't have had the phone in her possession when that group message was sent. Aunt has since said he was mistaken, and he's pretty sure he actually dropped the phone off December 2nd, not December 1st. Police spoke with the repair shop, but they had no record of when the phone was dropped off, but they had a receipt showing that it was picked up by Aunt's father days later. So did Phoebe really send the message, or did Aunt realize his mistake and change the date in his story to the police? But with everything going on, there was some positivity for Phoebe on December 3rd. The day after her death, Phoebe had plans to help her mother decorate for her brother's 18th birthday. The week after, her grandfather was turning 70, and soon after that, it was her best friend's birthday. So it seems that Phoebe had a lot to look forward to. But as we always say, at the end of the day, we don't know what's going on in someone's head, so we can't rule out suicide for sure. I just don't think that she got in that chute on her own, which means that someone put Phoebe in that chute. But who? Well, I am going to present you with two potential suspects. Um, the blood on the computer, or there was blood on the computer, inside the garbage bin, in the apartment study, and on the floor and outside the door of the 12th floor garbage room. Most were a match to Phoebe, but there were other blood samples in the apartment that weren't tested, so could some of those have come from her killer? Well, according to Detective Payne, 
one of the construction workers, who was up in the penthouse doing renovations, hurt himself on the job. Apparently, he cut himself while building furniture on the B1 parking level. He was a match to the blood found in the elevator and on the B1 parking level. But could this man have been in Phoebe's apartment or any others who were working in the building? Absolutely. Because of the fire alarms earlier in the day, the building's security system had been compromised, so anyone could have accessed the 12th floor without needing a swipe card or a key. After Phoebe was discovered, her family went to the apartment, and there's no record of them having to swipe to get in because they were just able to get in. So anyone could have gained access to the 12th floor. Someone could have spotted Phoebe when she was outside during that first fire alarm, and they could have followed her inside. So the list of potential suspects is fairly long. As you may recall from earlier, I mentioned that police found large, dirty boot or shoe prints leading away from Aunt and Phoebe's apartment. And we know there were people working construction in the penthouse at the time. So what if one of them saw Phoebe? Maybe during the fire alarm in the morning or at some point in the hallway, he took an interest in her and approached her. Maybe she said no, and there was an altercation in the apartment, and the suspect thought that Phoebe was unconscious, and he tried to dispose of her body. There were also two glasses on the counter, which could indicate that Phoebe had someone over. It's also possible that both glasses were Phoebe's, but we'll never know because they weren't fingerprinted. And since there were sleeping pills in Phoebe's system, is it possible that someone drugged Phoebe's drink? Again, we'll never know because the glasses weren't tested. So does the second glass and the boot prints meet belong to the same person? Was the guest invited or not? We don't know. One other option as to who the second glass may have been for is Phoebe's boyfriend, Aunt. As we always say on this show, when someone dies, the first person the police look to is Phoebe's partner. Sorry, the person's partner. Mm -hmm. I would normally have gotten to the partner first, but I've chosen him for last because it's a lot. Okay. (laughs) So you thought we were on a journey before? Here we go. So when Phoebe was 23, she was a receptionist at the Lindley Godfrey Hair Salon in South Yarra. There she met 42-year-old Aunt Hample, who was a client at the time. Aunt was a wealthy events promoter who came from a wealthy, high-profile family. After five months of dating, Phoebe moved into Aunt's place at the Valencia Apartments in October 2009. Phoebe agreed to pay Aunt rent and share expenses. Soon after, Phoebe left her receptionist job as Aunt didn't think it was good enough, and she started a part-time position at an advertising agency called Savvy. He uh, got the job for her, because I guess that job was good enough. Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm. Over the next 14 months, pressures in the relationship caused Phoebe's drinking to increase. At one point, she told her psychiatrist that Aunt was verbally abusive and controlling. And one of Aunt's female friends said that Aunt could, quote, come across as verbally aggressive. 
Phoebe had said she didn't keep much of her stuff at the apartment, as, quote, Aunt doesn't like my things here. Friends say that Phoebe never felt she was good enough for Aunt, and the couple had a very rocky relationship. Aunt and Phoebe's relationship um, had a lot of red flags, I feel. Uh, So we're going to get into them, because it's what we do. It is. In the six weeks prior to her death, Phoebe left Aunt four separate times. According to Phoebe's friends, Aunt, quote, always managed to lure her back. Mm-hmm. Phoebe went out on Monday, November 29th, with a friend that Aunt didn't approve of. And between 11.26 p.m. and 12.41 a.m., that is a span of 75 minutes, Aunt called Phoebe's cell phone 38 times. Wow. After that night, that cell phone disappeared. So did she get rid of it, or did he? On December 2nd, Aunt said that he'd been at work all day, but that he called the landline every couple of hours just to check on Phoebe. According to the call logs, Aunt called the landline 11 times between 11.44 and 5.47. To be clear, I do not feel that 11 times in six hours counts as every couple of hours. And the relationship between Aunt and Phoebe's family was also a bit rocky. A few days after Phoebe's death, Aunt had Phoebe's parents over to the apartment to discuss funeral arrangements. Phoebe's mother said she wanted to pick up some of Phoebe's things, and Aunt refused saying he had power of attorney for Phoebe because they lived together. Phoebe's parents disagreed, so they lodged an application with the coroner to get themselves power of attorney. Three days later, on December 8th, Aunt sent an email to Phoebe's parents saying he was deeply hurt that they challenged his position as power of attorney or senior next of kin. Quote, without the courtesy of consulting me. He told them he didn't want to fight over Phoebe's body, but he would permit them to organize the funeral directors and make arrangements for the cremation. He would permit them? Oh, dude's got some control issues. Yeah. And then he went on to say he didn't want to, quote, sully or dishonor Phoebe's memory by engaging in a dispute over who has the best claim to take charge of her body now. And another one for your psychologist hat. Please. Aunt said that his pain over Phoebe's parents' conduct is, quote, insignificant compared to the pain Phoebe would feel if she knew they had taken this course. That's interesting. I'm sorry. I know the man was grieving, and that grief does weird things to people, but that is the most dramatic bullshit I've ever heard. Yeah. Phoebe tried to leave you repeatedly, but you shoved your way back in her life. Let her parents deal with this. They want to. Let them do it. Which they did. 
They arranged a funeral for Phoebe, but Aunt also arranged a funeral? Phoebe's mother said that she couldn't bring herself to attend the second one. Again, his need for control is almost terrifying. But while I'm speaking negatively about Aunt, let's look at a list that I've called Sketchy Things About Aunt. During the inquest in 2014, Aunt said that he returned home on December 2nd. He found a small shrine in their bedroom. It included a picture of Phoebe's cat, a picture of Aunt, and some black candles. He said he became very concerned at that point. However, when the forensic photographer went to the apartment, he specifically said that, quote, none of the photos in the apartment were in a shrine-like setting. It's the fact that he used those exact words um, that I found interesting. Yeah. Uh, also, Aunt said that he was super concerned about where Phoebe was. And yet, activity logs show that he used their computer at 6.19 p.m., 6.34, 7.10, 7.39, and 7.40 he claimed that when he saw the blood, he thought the computer would be a clue as to where Phoebe was. And if that's true, then why didn't he try and open Phoebe's email or something? Instead, he only opened GarageBand and iPhoto. I don't know how either of those would have helped find her uh, in the later time frames uh, the 710, 739, and 740 computer uses, and accessed iMovie. But again, I don't think he was genuinely looking for clues. Also, if it's me and I get to a computer and it has blood on it, I'm probably not going to touch it. Yeah. So there's that. When police first interviewed Ant about Phoebe, a detective later testified that Ant cried throughout most of it. However, he, quote, observed there were no tears running down his face, nor did it appear that there had been any. He made sniffling noises, but there was no sign of anything actually coming out. Oh, boy. In his official statement to police, after finding out that Phoebe had died, Ant said, and I quote, I believe that as a result of Phoebe's depression and alcohol abuse, she took her life tonight. Which feels very, I don't know, what are the words? Rehearsed and robotic? <laughs> it just feels very, this is a statement you give police. Yeah. And I don't care for it. Aunt told police that when he got home, he made some calls to try and find Phoebe. But he had no luck. Well, according to phone records, Aunt texted one of Phoebe's friends asking where she was. He spoke with her dad, but only because the dad called first. He also took a work call and ordered food, but that single text was his only attempt to locate Phoebe. Aunt told police that Phoebe lost her Nokia phone during a night out earlier in the week. However, according to phone records... Aunt called that Nokia phone on the day she died. The call lasted 13 seconds. Aunt says he absolutely did not speak with Phoebe that day. And you know what? 
he doesn't remember making that call at all. Mm-hmm. And speaking of phone records, according to Detective Payne, at 6.24 p.m., the landline phone at Ant's apartment called a company called Solar PV. The call only lasted five seconds, but Ant is adamant that the call wasn't him. But he was allegedly the only person home at the time. So, if it wasn't Ant, then who made the call? Was Phoebe actually home at the time? Did you guys have a fight? And you don't want to talk about it? Oh, and police asked Aunt to keep the SIM card that was in Phoebe's iPhone. Ah, oh, wouldn't you know he lost it? Oh, come on. Aunt was also left alone twice in the apartment after the police got involved. And let's not forget that during the inquest, Aunt's lawyers asked the coroner to specifically exclude the possibility of Aunt's involvement in Phoebe's death. And one weird thing to mention, in case it may be important. When one of the detectives was in the apartment with Aunt, the detective noticed he didn't have any cell service while he was in the apartment. He later went downstairs in order to make a call. I don't know if it was always like that, or if it was an issue with the detective's phone, or his cell provider, or what it all means. But as far as it goes with the show, if I learned it, then so must you. <laughs> of course. That's how it works. And while all of this has made Ant look very suspicious, if he was going to kill Phoebe, whether it was planned or a spur-of-the-moment crime of passion— why wouldn't he push her off the balcony? Why shove her down the garbage chute when she may actually survive the fall? Well, to me, I think that even in the moment, he would have known that her falling from the balcony could have been seen by numerous people, and he didn't want people to know he was home at the time that she died. Allegedly. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that they had been arguing throughout the week about Phoebe's drinking? She had gone out just three nights before with a friend, and Aunt called her 38 times in the span of 75 minutes. That's unhinged. Although he could say he was concerned about her. Aunt also claims that Phoebe's Nokia phone went missing that night. We know there was that phone call he made to that phone on the day she died, but as of October 2022, that phone has still never been found. But let's say they were fighting about maybe Phoebe's drinking. An aunt came home that day to find Phoebe passed out, and he snapped and picked her up and took her to the garbage chute. I mean, a controlling, potentially abusive man literally throwing his partner in the garbage makes a pretty loud statement to me. Again, I'm not outright saying that Aunt had anything to do with Phoebe's death. I'm just looking at all the possibilities. But let's say for a moment that Aunt was involved. Is it possible the police didn't fully investigate the case as a favor to Aunt? Or did Coroner White make some judgment calls on Aunt's behalf? Or maybe it wasn't for Aunt's sake. Maybe it was for the sake 
of Ant's family. After all, Ant's father is George Hample. Who is that, you say? I'm so glad that you asked. George was born approximately 1935. This family, finding any personal details about them online, is so weirdly difficult that it's to a point of sketchy. Interesting. But uh, he later married a woman named Suzanne Owen. They had a daughter, Christina, around 1965, and their son, Anthony, aunt, around 1967. George became a barrister in 1958 before becoming a justice of the Supreme Court of Victoria from 1983 to 2000. Mm-hmm. He, he later became a law professor at Monash University in Melbourne. George was also the president of the International Institute of Forensic Studies and vice president of the Law Council of Australia. In 2006, he was appointed a member of the Order of Australia. But before we brag too much about George, I'd like to say that while he was a highly respected judge, I don't agree with some of his decisions, which leads me to a, is that what you call justice, George? Side note. (laughs) Just two cases here. He had a lot. I'm only going to focus on the two. Both just happened to have occurred in 1987. They are not related to each other. On August 9th, 1987, in Clifton Hill, Victoria, 19-year-old Julian Knight fatally shot seven people and injured 19 during a sniper-style shooting spree, which would later be known as the Hoddle Street Massacre. Knight methodically loaded two rifles and a shotgun and packed a hundred rounds of ammunition and headed to a strip of grass on the east side of Hoddle Street. At 9.30 p.m., he just started opening fire on passing vehicles. Police arrived on scene eight minutes later, so Knight ran north along the Clifton Hill railway line, firing shots at a police car as he ran. Then he stopped to smoke a cigarette, and continued on the run for another 20 minutes before he was apprehended. Knight pleaded guilty to seven counts of murder and 46 counts of attempted murder. He was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences, but Judge George Hample allowed a minimum sentence to be added, meaning that Knight could apply for parole after serving just 27 years. George believed that Knight would cease to be a danger to the public as he matured. Knight was denied parole in 2014, and the state government then passed legislation that would keep Knight in prison until he is, quote, in imminent danger of dying or is seriously incapacitated, and that, as a result, he no longer has the physical ability to do harm to any person. Right. And yes, I understand the concept of someone being rehabilitated, but I'm pretty hard-pressed to believe that a mass shooter is not going to change their ways. But honestly, even if they do, I do believe they still deserve to spend the rest of their life in prison. Yeah. Especially if they take multiple lives, but maybe maybe that's just me, George. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, 
second case that I'm going to refer to, well, actually, before I get to that, um, Julian Knight's victims, if I may, uh, 23-year-old Tracy Skinner, 26-year-old Johnny Muscat, 24-year-old Vesna Markovska, 27-year-old Robert Mitchell, 21-year-old Georgina Papawana, 53-year-old Dusan Flanick, and 21-year-old Kenneth Stanton. My apologies if I said any of those incorrectly. So, the second case uh, about this side note, August 26th, 1987, in northern Melbourne, suburb of Coburg. After arriving at school, where she taught kindergarten, Vicki Cleary saw her ex-boyfriend, Peter Keogh, in the parking lot. Vicky had ended the relationship three months prior, and Keogh was not happy about it. At the sight of Keogh, Vicky swore at him, and Keogh responded by stabbing Vicky four times. He left the scene and stopped at a nearby shop for a nice cup of coffee. Oh, boy. When police found him, Keogh was carrying tape, surgical gloves, a pair of pliers, and a hunting knife. Wow. Sadly, Vicky died from her injuries. She was just 25 years old. During the trial, Judge George Hampel allowed Keogh's lawyers to argue that Vicky had provoked him, meaning that she was partly responsible for her own death. And I may be in the minority here, but I just don't think that swearing at a person means you're asking them to brutally murder you in broad daylight. Nope. Shame on you, George, for allowing that. Oh, and did I mention Kehoe had previous convictions for sexual assault? So he wasn't exactly the best guy. Oh, Jesus. But since George allowed the provoking argument, Kehoe was only found guilty of manslaughter as opposed to murder. George sentenced him to six years in prison. Oh, my God. He was released in July 1991 after serving less than four. It's enraging, but Vicky's family, bless them, have taken that anger and used it to make a difference. They pressured the government for years, and in 2005, the government um, made the the defense of she provoked me no longer usable in court. Oh, that's great. So I like that something good came out of it, but don't like anything else that happened. Uh, Barely a side note. In a side note, Keo took his own life in 2001 after uh, 10 years after he was released. Gotcha. So if you ask George about some of his cases, he says that passing tough sentences is easier than passing light ones. A direct quote from George, quote, it takes a bit more thinking and a bit more courage to be a bit more merciful. People complain that your sentences aren't tough enough, and you respond that it's actually the smarter and braver move to give a lighter sentence. Tell me you're an old, rich, white man without telling me you're an old, <laughs> rich, white man. Yeah. And I know I'm not a judge, but I just didn't agree with George's choices here. But it is time for us to move on. Personally speaking, at some point, 
I don't know when, because again, this family is not liking putting specific dates on the internet. George and Suzanne got divorced sometime in the mid-90s. So then 60-year-old George married 40-year-old Felicity, who allegedly, quote, shares his passion for accountability. Oh, great. Which is weird, coming from a man who allowed an innocent victim like Vicki Cleary to be blamed for her own death. Where's the accountability there, George? <laughs> Again, I'm moving on. Felicity was impressive in her own right. She became a barrister in 1981, and by 1996, she was one of Australia's top human rights lawyers. In 2005, Felicity became a judge of the County Court of Victoria. In 2021, Felicity was appointed member of the Order of Australia for, quote, significant service to the judiciary, to legal organizations, and to women. So while I'm not saying that Ant was responsible for Phoebe's death, I'm just saying that when someone gets into a bit of a dicey legal situation, I bet it helps to have two former lawyers, a former Supreme Court justice, and a sitting judge in the family. And I know what you're thinking. How can I assume that George's child might benefit legally from having George as their father? Well, in August 2014, the home of George's daughter, Christina Hampel, was raided after a long-standing investigation into drug trafficking. Investigators found a tear gas canister, at drugs, and over $12,000 in cash. Whoa. She was arrested for possession of an illegal weapon and four counts of trafficking cocaine. Police later returned a portion of the cash they said they found to have been earned legitimately. Christina pleaded guilty to one count of dealing cocaine and one count of possessing an illegal weapon. The magistrate in the case said that Christina was 49 at the time, so she should have known better. But because of, quote, her early guilty plea and the embarrassment to her family, she was sentenced to 200 hours of community service. Wow. And a 24-month community corrections order which is a flexible sentencing order that an offender serves within the community. I will point out that a few years after Phoebe's death, Christina made a Facebook post about Phoebe and wrote, quote, One day the truth will come out. She deleted the post 12 hours later. So Christina might not be team aunt, but my point of bringing all this up is just to show the difference an influential family can make in a court case. I'm not outright saying that it played a factor here. I'm just giving you the information and leaving you to make your own decision about it. Mm -hmm. And one final thing uh, that I want to bring up about Ant for the purpose of our discussion. At some point after Phoebe died in 2010... Aunt married a woman named Emily Williams. I wish I could find when they got married, but there is so little on the internet that actually acknowledges that the couple ever even knew each other. Not a single photo, nothing, especially when he is like an events promoter who's in the public eye, always at events, that kind of thing. No photos of them whatsoever. I assume the family had any images or mention of them taken down as the public may not have reacted well to seeing Aunt get married so soon after Phoebe's death. Again, 
I know that people grieve in different ways, but I also can't find when these two actually got together. Uh, but I know that they were at least dating, if not married, during the inquest. Because Ant was interviewed by author Robin Bowles. Uh, he said that his wife was incredibly supportive during the whole ordeal. The couple divorced in 2017, uh, and she moved to London. While going through his divorce, 51-year-old Ant started a relationship with 24-year-old Bailey Schneider. You can <sighs> get older, but they keep staying the yep. same age. Bailey was born February 19th, 1993, in Queensland to Cameron and Sabine Schneider. In 1998, the family, which also included Ryan and Lily, moved to Tasmania. In 2013, Bailey moved to Melbourne and enrolled in a dental assistant program. In late 2017, Bailey went to Bali to do some modeling. And while there, she met Anthony. By the time Bailey returned home a month later, they were in a relationship. Bailey suffered from anxiety and depression, and she struggled with substances. In 2017, Bailey's parents moved to Mooney Ponds, Victoria, to help get Bailey's life back on track. She moved in with them, and in early June 2018, she was treated at Royal Melbourne Hospital for a potential suicide attempt. On June 23, 2018, Bailey's mother found her crying around 10 a.m., Bailey said that she and Aunt had just broken up because their worlds were just too different. The couple had been together for about nine months at this point. After consoling her for a few hours, Bailey's parents left to go to the grocery store. While they were gone, their son Ryan, who lived in a room at the back of the house, noticed Bailey arguing with someone on the phone in the backyard. Ryan said she seemed upset but she gave Ryan a hand gesture to let him know that she was okay. Soon after, their parents arrived home to find Bailey on the kitchen floor with her head against the lower cabinet and a gold curtain tie knotted around her neck. Her father cut the rope and attempted CPR, but it was too late. Bailey's cause of death was compression of the neck, and the coroner ruled her death to be a suicide. Bailey was just 25. And yes, Bailey was struggling with depression, and she was on medication and was going through a breakup. The coroner also found traces of Zoloft, Xanax, and cocaine in Bailey's system, and her blood alcohol level was 0.17. And from what I can tell, Bailey had gone out to a party the night before and arrived home at 8 a.m., so it's possible that most of the drugs and alcohol in her system were from the night before. In the grand scheme of anything is possible, is it possible that Bailey's case is similar to Conrad Roy, who took his own life in 2014 after his girlfriend, Michelle Carter, sent him text messages telling Conrad to kill himself? Michelle was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to 15 months plus five years probation, but is it possible that Bailey spoke to someone who pushed her into taking her own life? Bailey's brother said he saw her talking on the phone to someone, and she seemed really upset. Is it possible whoever she was talking to was telling her horrific things and that she shouldn't live any longer? 
And while I'm not suggesting that Ant had anything to do with Bailey's death, I'm just going to point out that he was the last person to speak with her. Which is weird, since they had broken up hours before. So why would they have been on the phone at all? Well, according to Ant, he claims that he had been working to help Bailey get her life back on track. Which is interesting, since that is almost exactly what he said to Phoebe's mother. The first thing he said to her after the death of her daughter was, quote, I never gave up on her. And I don't know if this is some sort of savior complex or not. Well, according to Psychology Today, the savior complex, quote, makes a person feel the need to save other people. This person has a strong tendency to seek people who desperately need help and to assist them, often sacrificing their own needs for these people. And while I am certain that I don't think Ant was sacrificing his own needs for either of these women, let alone anyone, it's possible he was trying to help to help them just to feed his own ego. Although I don't know how much he was actually helping. As you may recall, when Phoebe went missing, he found blood and broken glass in their home, and instead of trying to find Phoebe, he just ordered himself dinner. But again, in the grand scheme of anything is possible, what if Bailey didn't take her own life? According to Bailey's parents, there is nowhere in that kitchen that Bailey could have hung herself. She was five foot nine, well, almost five foot nine, and there was just no place in that kitchen that have would that would have made hanging possible. Bailey's family have since tried to get an inquest into her death, but as of now, they are still waiting. Police said that they worked the case for months and that, quote, any direction for further police action is at the discretion of the coroner. But the coroner concluded that Bailey must have hung herself from the pantry door and that there was nothing suspicious about her death, so her case was closed in 2020. Having one significant other die in a suspicious manner is a lot. But to have a second one die less than eight years later feels, I don't know, suspicious, maybe? Again, I am not outright accusing Ant of anything. I'm just saying that when you look at everything, some of the stuff just doesn't add up. And in the end, there just seems to be no justice for Phoebe or for Bailey, and both of those women deserved better than that, And God knows they both deserved better than that man. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wowzer. Yeah. That took some turns in that act I wasn't I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Well, listen, let's keep you on your toes. You you always do. Um, Let's take one more break, get one more drink, hit the can one more time, and then we're going to come back and give our final thoughts on the Phoebe Hansjuck episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. 
Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking the Phoebe Hansjuk case. And my goodness, this is, I mean, there's so many things. Yep. I feel like I'm going to jump around a bit. Um, I think what's interesting is just getting into Ant, Ant yep. Hample. Uh, it's interesting to me that he, the similarities between Phoebe and Bailey were just so in line, the fact that yeah. they were both dealing with depression, the fact that they were both dealing with substances, the fact that they were both um, 23, the fact, you know what I mean? Like, there's mm-hmm. just like, it feels like he has a real kind of MO there. And that's the reason why, putting my psychologist hat on, yeah, I don't think that this is a true savior complex. I think that this is something far more dark. I think this is more... Sure controlling and um yeah i think that again when when you're picking out a target that is so specifically similar in both of these cases and in both of these cases both women ended up dead yeah i just think that adds another layer to what was going on for him you know, speculating that perhaps maybe he knows what happened to them. Um, but jumping back now uh, to Phoebe, I have a couple theories here. It is completely implausible that if this is a man who is calling her 38 times when she's out for 75 minutes with a friend, that if he came home and didn't know where she was, that he wouldn't be blowing up her phone. Yep. Full stop. Yep. If you are somebody who's calling the landline when you know she's at home twice an hour, 11 times in six hours or whatever it was, yep. this is not someone who when you come home and the person's not there and you had dinner plans with her father, this isn't somebody who's not going to be blowing up her phone. It's just, it doesn't make sense. And you know what I'll say is sloppy. Yeah. Sloppy. Again, we're speculating here that maybe Aunt had something to do with this. Sloppy. Keep up with your own patterns, man. Come here, Peaches. Yeah. Come here. 
I mean, even if he wants to make the argument that she supposedly had no cell phone with her, then why did you call the Nokia phone that supposedly went missing days before? Right. Um, And also, if you so say, yeah, say you couldn't get a hold of her. Call everybody that she knows. Yep. Yes. Call the police. Call everybody. You're not going to start saying to her dad, oh, it'll take 48 hours. No. If you are somebody who is so possessive that you are calling that many times, then you are going to start calling every single person you've ever met, the two of you, trying to figure out who this person is. The fact that he ordered food from the same restaurant they were supposed to go to is so definitively to me that he knew that she was not coming back. Again, I'm speaking from making a psychological profile here. Of course. Um, And I am getting full sociopath vibes because this is somebody that believes that he is smarter than everybody and that he's never going to get caught and he's above the law and all of the above. Now, the other thing that we know about true sociopathy is that it is rooted in – and true true narcissism is that it is – excuse me. I should have have said narcissism, not not sociopathy. I've I've been up for many hours – I think that we're we're seeing an example of true narcissism, rather, that he thought that he was above the law, that he wasn't going to get caught, all of the above. And that the next point I was going to make was, we know that true narcissism is rooted in extremely deep self-loathing. And the way that the brain fractures is that it puts all of these other um, unbecoming traits to the forefront of your personality. Because of that, I'm seeing it would make sense to me that that type would be someone who is going after a much younger woman, a much younger woman who uh, perhaps is dealing with some mental health, is dealing with some substance, is dealing with all of these things. That makes sense because this is somebody who probably intrinsically deep down is telling himself, well, um, I can't go for someone my own age, which was kind of something that you said, uh, you know, tongue in cheek near the beginning, but it's true. Deep down, subconsciously, he, and and I think many with, with a true narcissistic profile, don't believe that they can actually attain someone who is at their level and, um, you know, meaning uh, successful, the same age, all of these things. Yeah. They're going after someone that they know that they can manipulate and get to kind of do what they want and control in the way they want because of, again, the deep insecurity that if they were with someone that perhaps had a little bit more life experience and wisdom, they wouldn't go along with this person that's calling them incessantly and and doing these kinds of behaviors with them. So to me, I'm I'm just getting a real kind of – I'm getting a lot of textbook narcissism stuff happening here. Um, you know, speculating. Yeah. Now – Here's the other thing. If it's me and my partner is supposed to meet me and my partner's father for dinner and I come home and they're not here, even if I'm trying to remain calm, I'm not ordering food. Yeah. Even if it's been two hours, I'm going to go out on a limb here and tell you something. Uh, I'm not going to have an appetite. And if I'm really hungry for some reason from the day, it's like you're going to grab something from the fridge. You're not going to go to the trouble of picking up a phone, of looking at a menu, of dialing a number, of making small talk, 
of order. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's so calculated and does not fit that moment whatsoever. It's a, it's, it bump, it's bumping me. It's a red flag. Yeah. The fact that he wasn't concerned that there was the broken glass and blood in the apartment. When again, this is someone who has seemingly been very concerned about her whereabouts at all times is another layer to all of this. The fact that the delivery guy comes up, 803, says there's a bunch of cops down there. So then he decides to stroll down and just ask the cops, hey, could it be my girlfriend? That adds to this narcissistic profile, too. Yeah. It was worded like he went down there and went over to, like, found a detective, went over to him and was like, hey, I live in this building. What's going on? As though he's owed any explanation for anything. Right. Okay. So it's believed she entered the chute at the 12th floor, survived. The trash compactor blade nearly severed her foot off completely. Yeah. She, it appeared she would have pulled herself to the door but could not open it. Her belt was open. Her pants were down. No signs of an assault. Could she have been trying to make a tourniquet? Again, more than possible. I have a couple of batshit theories. Sure. Number one, is it possible? And I'm just going out in a world where anything is possible. Yeah. Because again, we have this very wide window that she could have entered the chute, which seems odd to me. I know, right? Before I get to my theory really quickly, no one heard a scream? Because here's the here's what it doesn't add up to me. If she's intoxicated and has taken these sleeping pills and is potentially dopey and goes down yeah. the chute, what I will say, having lived in a building that has garbage, I've lived in many buildings with garbage chutes, you hear it. If you're living near where the chute is located, sure, you hear the door open to the garbage room, you hear the door open to the chute, you hear whatever goes in and you hear the bump, 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 bump if it's going down. Sure. If a body if a human was going down there it's gonna be loud it just is period so that's the first thing where i'm like nobody in that building at any point no one the building is so well soundproof nobody heard anything okay and then my next point is if we know if we knew due to the forensics that she was still alive and pulled herself to the door and this is between 12 p.m. and 7 p.m. There was no one working or or walking through that building that didn't hear this woman who must have been making some kind of noise. Even if she's drunk and drugged, she's going to be hitting things or, or knocking on a thing. Yeah. I would think making some sort of scream or some sort of vo- vocalization. Like, it just feels very odd to me. That no one heard anything coming from this trash room. And I understand yeah. it could be set away, whatever, but I'm just pointing out these things that were bumping me. So is it possible we have these boot prints going to her door? We have this these construction workers. Is it possible yeah. um, for some reason this construction worker goes to her door, whether it's because... He was on that floor. I don't know how many floors there were. We know we were working. They were working on the penthouse. We know that that these uh, um, Phoebe and and 
aunt's apartment was on the 12th floor. I don't know how many floors there were in 23. between. 23. 23 right? total. Okay. So is it possible for some reason, somehow, when she's out walking the dog, for example, or something, she chats this guy up, he chats her up, there's some conversation. Or if this this work's been going on in the building for some time, they've seen each other around, they've said hello, whatever. Sure. Is it possible somehow this guy ends up finding out which apartment she's in, knocking on the door, she's intoxicated, let's say, again, go with me on this. Yeah. He maybe invites himself in with potential innocent or or not so innocent intentions, we don't know, but that aunt comes home and finds them together. Oh. And in this moment of rage, he flies off the deep end because we already know he's verbally abusive. We already know he may have this angry streak. Yeah. Says to the construction guy, get the F out of here. I don't know if we have an exact timeline on when this guy, quote, hurt himself, this construction worker. Right. Is it Not possible? Enough. Is it possible? Aunt threw a glass or whatever, hits this guy. He's bleeding. Mm -hmm. He gets into the elevator, goes down to his car, and that's why there's blood in the B1 level and blood on the elevator because he was fleeing from this very jealous boyfriend who has found him with his girlfriend. And then is it possible as a follow-up, in his rage, Aunt picks up this very drunk Phoebe and throws her down the chute in the same kind of scenario? It's would also fit with the boot the dirty boot prints running away from the door exactly because they and it said that also gets cleaned all the time so those boot prints would have happened in that afternoon in that time span and there's no boot prints going to the door right so it's feasible also he went in there and maybe they had been in there together for some time. Maybe they got drunk in there together. We don't know. Sure. Again, and this is I'm no judgment. I'm Who knows? Again, we're just trying to find any possible leads. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But again, footprints running from the door. And then it also explains her not being in that chute or that garbage room for long. Because I don't buy that she was in there from noon until she's eventually found at, you know, eight o'clock or whatever it is. I just don't think yeah. that she would have been in there slowly dying and that no one would have heard anything. I, I mean, I no. guess that's possible, but it just feels unlikely to me. So to me, again, I can believe it a little bit more that if he gets home between six and seven and we know she got in that shoot potentially around seven. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh, Yeah. I think the only reason they did the time frame that they did was she was seen on camera entering the building at 11.50. Right. And wasn't seen again until the concierge found her just after 7. The only other thing I wanted to, to add. Yeah. And I want to preface this by saying I say this without an ounce of judgment. Is it also possible 
that her belt was undone and her pants are potentially down because he could have walked in on them about to do something. Sure. And then when he threw her down the chute, they came off further or whatever. Is it possible? Now, yeah. again, this is I mean, we're going out on a limb here, but it just feels to me again like because because honestly, I don't believe that someone would kill themselves by throwing themselves down a trash chute. I've just never heard of that, especially one that's so small. But I'll also be honest. What would drive someone to kill someone in that way or attempt to kill someone in that way? Because it's also sloppy. Yes, it would be sloppy for him to push him push her off the balcony because people could potentially see you. It's it's potentially still daylight at this point or or dusk. But a fit of rage in the moment, you piece of you piece of garbage type bullshit. Sure. I can buy. And I can buy that in the heat of the moment, whatever that happens. I just don't see it again. Like to me, it's, it's, I also don't think if it's, if it's 14 by eight, I don't think you accidentally fall into 14 by eight, by the way. No. And those doors, they do spring back. Like it's, it's built to protect you from that. Especially when it was proven multiple times that a woman her size could not have fit her shoulders in there. Like, I don't know how she would have gone in head first and head first would have meant some sort of injury on her arms and hands that wasn't there. Yeah. I want to know. And of course, nobody is telling me. (laughs) I did not email the officers personally, but I want to know, were there any cuts or scratches on Ant anywhere? Was he properly checked out? Great question. I also want to know why every single blood sample wasn't tested. That's weird to me. Did you only, did you test all of them, but only admit the ones that were Phoebe's blood? Didn't admit that it was somebody else's? Because the two drinks could have easily been, she had someone over, the two drinks also could have been him, because again... They've given us that window of an hour. And they've given us a window with her of seven hours. So she could have had two separate drinks and two separate glasses. There's also that, right? Like it's the glasses. If the glasses aren't tested, it is completely useless information. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I also want to know you there was broken glass and you didn't think we should check every garbage can in this apartment. To see if we can piece together where the rest of the glass is. Well, maybe the rest of the glass was in the construction worker. Great call. And there were numerous construction workers that it could have been. Right. It's just nothing. I mean, I can't say nothing because many things bother me about this. But that it's it's that window. It's that seven hour window yep. for me that's unsettling. It's it's not like they found her body a week later and couldn't determine time of death. Even approximate time of death being like, well, sometime between 12 and 7. Really? Like, you just found her. I just, 
I feel like usually they can narrow it down a lot better than that. Usually they can. Well, I think, yes, great point. It just feels like they decided how long they felt it would take her to get into the building, go up to the 12th floor as though she entered the building and immediately just went to the shoot. And it's like, well, we don't think that happened. Right. And I also want to know, where was the dog? Yeah. Where was the dog when there was fighting going on? Or where was the dog when Ant got home? He only said there was like a mess everywhere. And when police came to the apartment, the dog was on the balcony. Well, that's interesting. So how long was the dog on the balcony? Great point. Who puts their dog on a balcony? It's also so dangerous. It feels unsettling, but it's like... like. You know the other thing I was thinking too? We know that the alarms went off earlier in the day and everyone yeah. was evacuated and it was a false alarm. Yes. Because of the construction. Yes. And then one conveniently goes off at six. Isn't it... Anytime I've lived in one of these buildings, if a fire alarm goes off, the elevators are shut down. You cannot access them. So to get out of the building, you're you're going down the stairwell. Mm -hmm. Couple of things. One, is it possible that that alarm went off around six, not because it was a false alarm, but because as construction worker is running from Ant... He pulled the alarm as a distraction. He pulled the alarm or Ant pulled the alarm because then he was like, you're not going to get away from me. Dude then goes down the stairs, for example. But then in that case, is it possible Phoebe in trying to run away knows she can't go down the elevator and then she throws herself down the chute to try and get away from Ant who's potentially murderous at this point. That's the only other thing that came to mind to me. Sure. Was that he pulled that to try and trap her and or whoever she was with. Interesting. Sure. But I know that was also a quicker false alarm. And typically if someone pulls an alarm, that possibly wouldn't be. But, you know, again, I'm just giving you anything I could anything I could think of here. Um, it's what we do. It's what we do. Um, the fact that they wouldn't let the the paramedics in because they didn't want them to disturb the the crime scene, like they're, that's what they're trained in. They're trained to, to uh, administer medical attention without disturbing crime scenes. It's the job. So that's, that's already, yep. That's already weird. And then you gotta, you gotta think, because obviously we know ants got some pretty, um, powerful family members. Yeah. But then it's like, had they already been contacted and the police already been contacted at that point? And that was part of the cover up, you know, potentially? Or was that, again, just a red herring, just a, a, a sloppy police move? It's possible. It's the thought that a body was found. Yeah. There was blood everywhere and not one person checked to see if she was still alive. It's really egregious. It's it's insane 
I get why this whole thing was chosen. Yeah. I, I, I get it. It was a, it was just a series of me going, oh, wow. Okay. This is, this is crazy. Oh, I don't believe she got in that shoot for that reason. And then it was, oh, well, this is her boyfriend. And I went, oh, yeah. Oh, and these are his family members. Oh. And then this is his other dead girlfriend. And I was like, oh, well. Like, it just, so many, every step of the way, it was something else that I'm like, this is insanity. Yeah. Like, I just. Well, I'd also like to know. I'd also like to know when all of her emails had been erased. Was that yep. part of what he was doing? What could uh, have been in that hour? Um, and if this police pa- had actually taken her computer yeah. that day, I'm sure some IT tapa tapa guy could. Uh, I say tapa tapa because <laughs> I liked it. You know, type in the keys. Uh, I'm sure some IT kind of forensic IT or whatever could potentially get them back somehow or look at when they were deleted or look at anything like that. But I don't know if you can do that same thing when it's been months. I, I, I am proving I don't know how computers work. I think you can for some time, but again, it's, mm. it's a little above our knowledge level. Yeah. Um, uh, one other thing. Yes. One other thing. We know that she had been trying to leave him for the six weeks prior. Yes. She allegedly sends this group text this, the morning of December 1st, the day before yep. she is killed. Yes. Um, which is meandering and long. I also found it interesting that it was to her family and close friends and her boss. I was like, that feels not like something someone would do. Yeah. Almost as though someone was writing it to try and make someone look crazy. Sure. Um. But here's my question. Yes. Had she been threatening him, I'm going to leave you again. Like, like, I can't deal with this or whatever. Perhaps that was some sort of fight. Sure. Are those work boots, again, just one other speculation here. Are those work boots either one of the construction workers or somebody we don't know of that was in that building who was coming to try and help her get away? Who was like, and, sure. and she had said... Whoever, Bobby, my my friend Bobby or this person or whatever is going to come and he's going to get me out of here. So he took her phone. It needed to get fixed. Okay, sure. He took that phone and sent that text to start to lay the groundwork that she's crazy and whatever so that he can discredit her. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's like, yeah. was it part of a conspiracy that then went wrong? That then it was like... He walked in at a point he wasn't expecting and he wasn't prepared for or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's something about that that also, again, was a red flag that bumped me. Um, here's the only other thing I wanted to offer. There might be a couple more. I, I, I should just finish going through my notes before I start saying that over and over <laughs> again. Um, I like it a lot. He said he found a shrine in their bedroom when he got home. He said there was a picture of him and a picture of the dog. Is that oh, correct? a picture of her cat. Her cat. I assume her cat lives with one of her parents, maybe, because it did not live at the house that I know of. 
And he said it was with black candles. Now, we know yes. that the crime scene photographer said there was no signs of that. But just for, because uh, this is where I come in, uh, black candles, uh, if you're doing magic, of course. you know, um, typically are used for psychic protection. Interesting. So to me, let's say that was something he found in the house. I am not gonna I am not well versed in all magic whatsoever. I I do know that some other some people also believe that black candles can just neutralize negativity. Okay. I don't know whether for her it was like, you know, trying to protect herself from him if she was using those candles, whether it was again a red herring that meant absolutely nothing, whether he was lying. All of these things are possible. Um, we also know that it's more than possible that if someone is verbally and emotionally uh, abusive, that they will threaten to harm your animals or your children or things that you love or your family members. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Like, again, I'm just trying to, to again, cobble together. Is there any other piece of this that feels like it's something that stands out? The fact that he only opened, he opened GarageBand, iPhoto, and iMovie. Right? That's weird. And like, did you wipe blood off of the keyboard before you used it? The fact also that he, the, the detective said that he was crying, but there was no tears. It was just him sniffling or like putting it on. Again, this feels like someone who's pretending to have feelings. You know what I mean? It's not, yep. <laughs> not great. Um, oh, again. Stop saying one last thing because I keep seeing other things here. 6.24 p.m., the landline called a company called Solar PV. It lasted five seconds. Doesn't that kind of company sound like somewhere a construction worker might work? Interesting. Is it possible that as, because also, let's keep going on this. Cell phones yeah. don't work up there. The detective said, right? Yeah. In, so 6.24 p.m. Is it possible at this point, Ant has come in, he's potentially found her with this alleged person. Sure. They're in an altercation. They're in an argument. Tries to use his cell phone. He can't. He picks up the phone to call a buddy or help or whatever. Sure. It gets hung up on. That's when the stab happens with the glass. He takes off. You know what I mean? Yeah, or I could also see he leaves when it starts getting angry. Yep. And after he's been gone for a few minutes, she she's the one who called. Yep. To be like, I want to talk to him and make sure he got out or got home or got back to work or got wherever. Or looking for help. Please come back. She was she was also intoxicated, sure. right? Very true. I feel like there's something there too. Um, yeah, and then again, just all of these things again that you found about his, the positions that his father held and his stepmother held, the fact that he then had another relationship that is the exact same M.O., the fact also, we had talked on the break and I had asked how tall Phoebe was and she mm -hmm. was 5'9 and Bailey was 5'9. Like, 
I believe you mentioned that. Like th- that's yeah. that's really specific. Yeah, we're looking at really kind of again. I don't know. It just feels to me like. Sadly, again, as we talk about so much on this show, we we may not ever know the truth. Um, but in the case of Bailey, too, like, oh, yeah, she hanged herself from a pantry door. Yeah. It just feels, again, like that's so difficult to pull off. Maybe she did. But again, I, I where there's smoke, there's fire. And when you have one man who is connected to two young women's deaths who both were going through similar struggles, same age, substances, all of the above. And we know that he has, you know, these very powerful familial ties. Yeah. I mean, yep. It just feels hard to think about anything else. Oh, it's it's pretty much impossible. I mean, I... <laughs> who knows? Looking back, I... I might get heat for uh, not being as neutral towards the suspects as I would normally be. But again, I did repeatedly say I'm not saying he was involved. Yeah, but you went through the other possibilities. Look at the list. You went through the possibilities, though, and you you went through the possibility of was it suicide, all these things. Because let's also keep – and was it someone else in the building? Then I, I'm the person that did a, they all did it type uh, t- sure. type theory, as I am not want to do. Um, no, but I think that you just went through and presented everything as it is, which is like, is it possible it's suicide? I guess. But again, I'll speak for myself. I think that's highly unlikely. Agreed. I don't, I have never heard of anyone killing themselves in that manner. Um, it's not efficient when you have a balcony. When we, she's spoken before about getting out on that balcony to a friend, like, it just doesn't add up. And then you get to, you have to get into who has access to this person. Yep. And then the list dwindles. Now, granted, again, like you pointed out, people could be in and out of that building when the, the, you know, power goes out, people don't need a, a key card to get in and out. Is it possible that there is some stranger that could be behind this? Of course, in the grand scheme of anything being possible. Is it probable? Well, then we start to unravel. Well, then well then, if that's the case, why did he act in all the ways that he did? Why were all of the, you know, then it yeah. starts to, again, it's it, where there's smoke, there's fire. So I I don't think that you, I actually think that you were neutral and then you just went the way that the story went, which is, (laughs) there's a lot there. It's so hard to, to not see it for what it is. To me, I feel like he has shown us who he is. Repeatedly. Well, yeah. And listen, it's it's very tragic. It's um, and it's it's uh, again one of those things that's so infuriating because all you want is for there to be to learn the truth. But oh, alas, yeah. if we've learned anything doing this for two years, sometimes we just may never. Um, Christy Oxborough, amazing work! What a truly compelling case. This one is really 
I mean, feels like it could have been solved. Feels like it was very solvable, but... That one detective who came in and was, like, busting his ass, trying to figure out, like, what's going on, and, like, I... If that guy had been given everything immediately, like, if yeah. he had been on the scene, it could be completely different. Because, again, to me... There is never a reason to not let paramedics attend a victim. I I think that's got to be violating some sort of laws. It has to be. I don't think that you can deny. It's the same reason why if you're a first responder and yeah. you come across an accident, someone I know personally sure. was driving late at night, first aid trained, so technically like a first responder, comes yeah. across an accident, someone was thrown from a vehicle. Oof. His training says he has to give CPR to that person until paramedics show up. Yeah. That's disturbing a crime scene, arguably. Yeah. But sure. that is how you are trained. And he said it was awful, not to get dark and bleak, but because he mm -hmm. because he knew the person was dead is the truth. And he continued to give CPR for about 20 minutes until paramedics came because that is how you're trained. So, again, it's like, to me, if that's how we're training first responders, then, then I think yeah. the whole point is, is that, first of all, someone should have been – whoever first comes across the body is the point is supposed to immediately start life-saving techniques – yeah. Or, you know, and I know that there was some comment made that it was like, she appeared to be blue. Um, but you still check for a pulse. Yes. You don't just assume someone's dead. That's wild. You don't look at someone and go, oh, I guess, probably. I think we can all say that, you know, that's a, that is a kindness that we should be doing, giving to every single human being, period. Yes. Period. Oh, God, Yes. We would want that for every one of our loved ones. We would want that for ourselves. Period. And it, it is egregious that that if if that if this is the the truth and that they were just barred from approaching the body, that's yeah. I mean, it's wild. Oh yeah, it's just it's hard to believe. Truthfully, I find it. Yes, and I'm not saying I don't, but it's it's honestly hard for me to believe because it's I've just never heard of that. It was one of the first things that came up in this, and I was like, wait hold on and then to find out that the boyfriend came home and found blood in the apartment and went weird those two things to me i'm like okay what's going on <laughs> weird i'm gonna edit my mixtape on my uh my thank you macbook here and then i'm gonna order yeah. some food like yeah it's i don't know it feels it's so bleak it's so sad because oh, yeah. again she from from all things considered, it's she died from blood loss. Yep. She bled out. Yep. That's someone that I mean, listen, who again at the point that people arrived, of course she could have already been dead. I'm not saying that, but like it's not like she fell and broke her neck and immediately died. Yep. She bled out. That's someone that there could have absolutely been a very faint pulse. That is I mean, look, we 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 do enough of this to know that it's like I would rather trust the the trained paramedics who have yep. the stethoscopes. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. 
that's who I would trust. The emergency medical professionals than some, than a, you know, a police officer saying, oh, I looked over, she looked dead. Like, even if you're feeling for a pulse is my point. And I'm not negating, again, that police do have medical training, of course. But I think that they they themselves a lot, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here, will defer to a paramedic. Yeah. <laughs> I've just never heard of it is my point. It's it's wild. It's yeah, just wild. There's just, it's just one thing after the other. Where it's not even, there's not a sink, like one single thing that you're like, oh, okay. Like, there's like 80 things that don't make sense. Yeah. Especially when you add them all together, you're like, how is this possible? That yeah. all of this happened this way. It's just so enraging. And I am also so curious because there is like finding information about the Hample family is difficult. Like there's the basic stuff, but like finding specifically wedding dates or right. birthdays or y- years they were born, any of that. Finding any of that was it was just not there. And I'm sure, I mean, easily I could just not have been looking in the right places. But then there's a part of me that's like, does he have something in his youth that was Phoebe not the first, is my point. Interesting. Was there someone before it's possible there some, could have been someone in the 80s. Is there something about the age 23, 24 that makes, like, did something happen to him around that age, which yeah. would have been the late 80s when we're not exactly putting things on the internet and dad is a Supreme Court justice at this point? Yeah. And could make things not show up in papers. And so there's no record anywhere. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if they can make a very large drug charge, no ch- no time at all, mm-hmm. I'm sure they could do a lot more than that. Oh, 100%. 100%. It just feels like a movie at this level. Yeah. Because of it just feels like too much. Like the writer went too far. Like I'm saying, that's what I mean. Like, that's why I was like, I just, it's hard for me to believe. And I'm not saying I don't, I do, but it's like, it's just hard to wrap your head around that. It's like, what? Yeah, it's, it's wild. Well, listen, again, fantastic research as always. I commend you. You only continue to exceed all of our expectations. Oh, look, you're adorable. Well, listen, we thank you for your work. We appreciate it. And we thank you, dear listeners, for joining us on this journey. Uh, if you haven't already, give us a follow on the socials on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives, uh, again on Patreon, patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. And the only place for official True Crew, True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. So check that out if you are interested. Christy, do you want to tell uh, the people about next week's episode? Uh, on the next True Crime and Cocktails, Ramon Navarro. Oh, now you're telling me this is an old-time uh, actor type, is that correct? 
It is. Well, listen, yeah. we like the old Hollywood cases. We get into those and we get into those. Good. I look forward to that. Uh, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Jessica Fletcher. Good night, Tom DeLong. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.